Hey, everybody, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's Word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. All right, it seems like we were gone forever. And, and I don't know if you followed my suggestion. I mean, it was totally up to you. But, but I know you had to study one of the weeks that we were off to get ready for tonight, Chapter 14, which is a dandy. But that one week, I didn't, I, I just suggested, you know, because we're kind of, we're a little past halfway, but, you know, there's just something about going back. I'm a firm believer of review because, because there's just so much and we can't contain it all. And so we go through and review to see little, little things that we underlined or little words that we put in the margin and lessons that we never we, we maybe never really related to as ours. We just knew the story so well, but we didn't know why. And so if you don't mind, I'm just going to take a few minutes and, and just kind of, because I did it, and I'm so glad I did it, especially Luke 1 and 2, right at that time of Christmas. And at the time, of, we were celebrating Jesus' birth. And, but it wasn't so much that that grabbed me the second time. It was, it was like in chapter one, it was what Gabriel said to Zechariah, and this is what I want so much for my own life, and I never really caught it for me personally when he said what, John's, what John was going to be doing, and that was bringing people back to the Lord. That phrase when he said he's going to bring people back to the Lord. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be so wonderful that that was one of our goals, that our lives, our testimonies, that we were so confident of what he's done for us that we can, we can be that kind of witness that we can draw people back to the Lord, or maybe for the first time. And then I also saw that, that line of Mary, where even though you might not understand what's going to come this year, you might not like certain things that are going to come this year, to remember what Mary said when she was told something that I'm sure she did not fathom or understand the whole concept of being the mother of the Savior. But she was willing to say to Gabriel, may it be just as you say. I mean, so willing to let God have his way in her life. I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful for us to be able to, you know, no matter what our circumstances, that we just look to him and say, Lord, may it be just as you say, because I trust you that you're up to something. And then, of course, the second chapter. But what really stood out to me this year about this familiar second chapter of Luke with our shepherds? You know, I always knew that the angels came to the shepherds, but, you know, when we talked about it, we said something about how the shepherds were so, you know, they were the lowliest of the low. I mean, they were probably young or they were the lowest of society. And yet that's who the Savior, that's who the Savior's message was brought to first. That's what the angels said. That, that glorious news, the angels brought that message first of the Savior to the shepherds. And, and you know what those shepherds did? You know, they, they said three things. They said, let's go, and let's see, and let's tell. And I thought, what a, what a threesome that, that that too can be a part of when the message comes and that we say, oh, let's go, let's go check it out. Let's go check them out. Let's go check to see if this works. Let's go see. And then 
yes, it does. And so let's go tell. And then, of course, in that chapter was Simeon. And I don't know how old he was. We always think he's an old man. But for some reason, he really, we don't know. But he was so willing to say, I've seen the Lord. Now, whatever you want to do. If you want to take me, that's fine. I mean, just to be able to know once you've experienced Jesus, once you know that your eternity is secure, once you know what that cross has done for you and Jesus paid it all and you're a recipient of that, isn't it just so wonderful to be able to say, now, Lord, whatever you want. If you want to take me, because all is secure, my soul as well. And then to be able to see Anna, and that to me hit me because Anna, she had a tough life. And how many times, Evan, maybe you said or I said, you know, God, life's tough. You know, why do I have to go through this? This is not at all. This is, this is beyond what I ever imagined. And I'm sure that Anna, I mean, her, her whole future was shot out of the box. Her husband died when she was young. And so, you know, goodness, there's a family, there's everything that she planned. How do you deal with that? How do you deal when your future has just been blasted? And what she did was, and I'll never forget that phrase, she worshiped every day, every night. She never missed worshiping. So what does that mean? She got her eyes off herself. Because when you're feeling sorry for yourself, nothing good happens. But our Anna, she made sure that she kept her eyes on the Lord. And he gave her what it took to endure every day. To maybe even have a glorious life more than she expected. So that chapter 2 was pretty wonderful too. And then chapter 3, that's when John the Baptist started his ministry. And boy, he, he, was, he was nothing to... Um, I mean, he was a no-nonsense guy. I mean, he knew he, too, was on the scene for a reason, and he did not miss a step. And his first word was repent. And he looked right at those Pharisees who were checking him out and trying to, you know, you know, look at this strange duck and wonder, what have we got here? And he was not a bit afraid to just say the truth. In fact, he looked right at him and said, you better produce fruit. You can't just say that you've repented. Along with repentance comes the transformation of your life. You've got to produce this fruit, this new character of Christ. So I went to, yeah, he was a no-nonsense kind of guy. But you just got to love him. And then in chapter 4, you saw, well, chapter 3 and 4, you saw Jesus' baptism and you saw his temptation. And you thought, you know, why would Jesus have to go through that? And he was the son of God but he's also the son of man. And, and he wanted to make sure that he identified with us in every way. And I think that's so wonderful that no matter what we go to him with, there is never going to be a time that his answer to us will be, sorry, I can't, I can't feel with you on that one. I don't quite understand that. I can't relate to you on that one. Because that's not true. When we go to our Lord, there isn't one thing that he hasn't gone through. So he can understand. He can know exactly how we're feeling. And he knows exactly how to help us. One thing I did miss to say to you in, in Luke chapter 1 was that Luke, your, or Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, it was that Luke, he did the genealogy 
of Jesus. But Luke did it in a different way than what Matthew did. Because Matthew was a Jew, he just started with Abraham. But Luke, he wanted to take it all the way from Adam. Because Luke was a Gentile. And for him, he just wanted to take it right from the beginning. And so I thought that was an enlightening statement too. Okay, then in Luke chapter 5, um, the leper. Remember the leper and what was his line? What line did he say that we do not want to ever forget because we want to use it too? I mean, here he is. He's so, he's so ugly at this time. He's, he's probably got his ears were eaten off, his nose eaten off. And, and yet, I mean, no one wants to be healed more than he does. And yet, his trust in the Lord for him to say, if you are willing. I know you can, but if you are willing. I mean, for us to be able to, when we're experiencing maybe one of those times in life, that we sure would love it if he changed it. But, but it, to be able to say, if it's not part of your plan, then I don't want it. That we finally get to understand that his plan is perfect. And that even though we might not like it, it might not be comfortable, it might not make us happy, but if we are willing to, to surrender and say, if you are willing, then this is what I'd like. But if this is not a part of your plan... In that same chapter, we saw the, the paralytic. And yes, we love the faith of his friends and, and all that, but I think this, there's a lesson here. When Jesus looked at him, he, he saved him first. I mean, he said, your sins are forgiven. See, to Jesus, that's more important in our lives than it is to make sure that everything is comfortable and happy and that we get everything physically we want. Jesus is more concerned He's, it's more important to him that our insides are right more than our outside. In chapter 6, we start to see now he's talking about blessed are you if you hunger. Blessed are you if you mourn. Blessed are you if you love your enemies. I mean, he's making statements like, what are you talking about? This is, this is not the kind of life I expected, but he said, I will bless you. I will so make it worth your while. If you hunger for me, if you mourn for your sin, if you start loving unconditionally instead of loving with conditions on it, if you show people my kind of love instead of just the human kind, you will experience a blessing like there's nothing that this earth, this world could give you that could bless you like that. Chapter 7 was the centurion. The centurion, that Gentile, that Roman centurion who was in charge of a hundred men with power and authority. And yet, I think the key word in this was desperate. I think this is the word we need to always remember. Jesus loves it when we're desperate. Kind of like when the hymn writer wrote, I need you every hour in joy or in pain. Come quickly and abide or my life's in vain. This centurion was desperate. He loved that servant of his and he came desperate. We also saw in that same chapter 7 was that sinful woman. And again, a woman that was desperate. And remember how she went into that home of Simon the Pharisee, and she didn't, she didn't care what anybody thought or said about her. She, she kept her eyes just right on Jesus, and she went, and she even went behind him and knelt and 
and how Jesus loved that. How the Pharisee missed the whole point, but Jesus loved the heart of that sinful woman. Remember when we said we don't know her name? Because it's that story that every one of us should put our name. That we come to him with that kind of desperate. When we come in that kind of desperation and we see him, we can almost see him with his arms open. Chapter 8, it was the parable of the sower. Very familiar parable, but... You know, what do you want to remember about the parable of the sower? Every time you open your Bibles, you better check your heart soil. This just doesn't pertain to the first time you hear the gospel. Every time you have your Bibles open, what kind of heart soil? Are you just going to try to get through those devotions? You still, are you just going to quick try to do those questions a minute and, and so that you, know, you can go on with your day and whatever you want to do? Or are you making sure that, that what you are studying, you're hearing Jesus talk to you? It's almost like, you know, he has his hands on your cheeks like you do with your kids when you want them to listen. It's like he's saying, I want you to hear this. And I don't want you to just be hearers of it. I want you to do it. I want it to start transforming you. So what kind of heart condition are you? Is your heart so pliable that you let this word just come in and it takes root? So at just the right time, the Holy Spirit is able to bring it to your recall and it's just what you need at that time. In chapter 9, in chapter 9, Jesus gives his disciples the power and the authority to be sent out. And what a privilege, what an honor that was for him to give the disciples. I mean, it was a privilege and an honor for the disciples to receive that kind of power and authority. Remember, they were all excited when they came back and they wanted that personal time with Jesus to tell them all the stories. And then all of a sudden the crowd's there and oh, here, you know, they kind of get probably miffed. You know, they get a little chip on their shoulder because Jesus like, starts to preach again and he preaches all the way to the end of the afternoon and so those guys finally say why don't you send them home we're in a rural area you know they haven't eaten all day send them home and Jesus looked at him and said you feed them and until this year I didn't really comprehend that he was saying I gave you the power and the authority do it but how quick self got in the way because they were so miffed about the, t the time that the people took over from theirs and right away, self gets in there, and all of a sudden, you have just minimized that power and that authority, and they didn't even see it. In fact, they looked at him and said, yeah, right, we got a little couple of blows, couple of fish, you know, almost like a, are you joking kind of thing, when Jesus was dead on serious, because God is able to do immeasurably more through us, but we could ever imagine because he's given us that power. And then how in that very same chapter, remember the ones that were not on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, they tried to cast the demon out of that young boy and didn't work. And this is when I really saw Jesus frustrated with him. But again, it's just such a reminder 
I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't know. I don't care how strong of a Christian you are. You are still in a battle with self. And I think that these disciples just kind of after, you know, going out there and have all the stories and now look what we can do. I think they forgot to plug into his power and his authority. And it doesn't work. What a reminder. Unless we plug into his power and authority, it's not going to work for eternity. Chapter 10, we see that Jesus now sends out the 70. And when he warns them, I think he's warning us. It's not an easy road to walk. It's not an easy road. There's going to be people that are going to misunderstand, probably people you least expect sometime. You're going you're gonna, to... Um, you're going to find that not only is it not easy, but they're going to hurt your feelings. They're, they're probably going to hurt you physically. I mean, he's just warning that sometimes when you have, in fact, the lesson tonight, you've you got to consider the cost because it is not an easy. But, but aren't you glad that he shoots straight with this, that he, that he doesn't paint this rosy picture? You come to Jesus and everything's fine. I'm glad he shoots straight with I'm glad he warns me that there's fakes out there and they look so pious and they look so religious and they look so churchy and all that. But sometimes they're the ones that are going to be the hardest on you. See, Jesus is talking from experience. It was in that same chapter that we saw Mary and Martha. And how that was such a good lesson because, you know, we have a tendency to always look at that story and say, oh, see, I should be a more of a Mary. And I'm, and I'm so a Martha instead. And that is so the wrong way to take that story. I mean, the Lord made us all different. I mean, some of us, he made Martha. Some of us, he made Mary's. Most importantly, he gave us all different spiritual gifts for different reasons. I mean, we need the Marthas. Yeah, we need the Marys, but she blew it too later on down the road when she put her, her emotions bigger than her faith. So it just shows it, it, what happened to Martha. Why is it Martha, Martha? Was because she took her eyes off the Lord and then onto herself and look what she, she started bossing the Lord around. I mean, it's, it, it, it even, you can't even hardly believe that you start saying things and acting like this. And yeah, that's what self does. Got to learn to take that and learn from that. Chapter 11, that's when the disciples said, did you teach us how to pray the way you do? And Jesus said, okay. And you know, it's what we know as the Lord's Prayer. At least it was a portion of it. And Remember when we talked about it, I don't think that he ever intended that we had to always pray those exact words, but it's kind of like a formula. Because so often when we start our prayers, it's usually, and, and this is what I want you to do, and this is how I want you to do it, and we just, uh, we just come to him like that. I mean, we might say, oh, dear Lord in heaven, would you just please do this and take care of this and... He says, no, this is the formula because this, this will change everything. It will change your whole attitude and, and what you're talking to me about. Remember, I'm your father. And believe me, I love taking care of my children. 
but so that you don't get too lax with that father thing. I want you to know that I'm holy, I'm held. I'm almighty God. And that your kingdom has come. I mean, I just think, of the, I just look at that sense as I have Jesus. I live on this side of, the, of Jesus' first coming. I live on this side of the cross. I live on this side of Pentecost. And then it's like, oh, he's my father, but he's almighty God. He's given me Jesus. The best thing I can have. He forgave my sins. He gave me new life. Gave me a future. All of a sudden, I'm starting to think. And then, and then I'm in a whole different frame of mind. Give me today what I need. Give me today what I need for you. Huh, how that changed. Not about me. Give me today what I need physically and spiritually for you, for your sake. So it was such a great formula. And then in that same chapter was those six woes. Remember when we talked about those six woes? It wasn't that Jesus was just out of control, mad. Woe to you meant I am warning you. I am running out of time. And if you don't heed this warning, you are going to hell. I mean, he called it for what it was. You religious, spiritual but spiritual what? So, I mean, he really tried all ankles to get them to understand who he was, to wake them up. Chapter 12 was more warnings about fake. I really caught that, and I don't know why. Probably because I needed it. I mean, you know, as much as we hate that word, hypocrisy, I mean, there's all of us, even though we've seen the Lord do enormous change in our heart, don't kid yourself. He's, he's not done with this yet. There's still areas of our heart that he's working on that maybe we're still maybe hypocritical on. And so he knows exactly what our heart's about. He knows exactly how to deal with this. But there was many, many warnings about being real, being real. And then in that same chapter, it was the don't worry thing. Don't worry about your life. In other words, he didn't give you any room. He didn't give me any room for saying, yeah, but you can't help it because it doesn't mean this. No, he just put it this way. Don't worry about your life. That means anything in it, anything about it, don't worry. And so you think, well, how in the world can you not worry? And, and I tried to explain to you at least the best way I can, because this is how I operate. I always check when something happens and my first impulse is to worry. You know what worry really is? It's unbelief. And what that means is that I just push God out and my eyes are so just in tune with my problem. I pushed him out and all I can see is the problem and how am I going to deal with this? So very simply, worry is when you push God out and you have just totally consumed yourself with the problem. I hope that you know by now that, that just because we don't do prayer request time, I hope you know that, of course, I want to know what's going on in your life. And many of you have let me know. I love praying for you. But I also know that in groups this size, it, 
time can get away from us and, and within an hour and a half's time, we can absorb so much of that time hearing everybody's story and everybody's problem. And it's not that they aren't important, but I, I just want to take this time, this valuable time, and teach us how to dwell on this solution. Because even though we all have, have our problems, and they're all worthy to be shared because you want people to care. I just think it's so important that the more time we spend on getting to know the problem solver, the more beneficial we are when we leave here on how to handle what we've got to handle because our eyes are back on him. So worry, no. Concern, yeah, that's permissible. Because you know what concern is? Concern is when you invite him in. It's the same problem, but you're inviting him in. Because you believe that he will never leave. And he will walk with you every step of the way. And I don't know, maybe this is where old age is starting to really be a benefit. You've experienced, I know for me, I've experienced it. And so I can stand here telling you, selling this, because I know it's true. The more I choose to put worry aside and invite him in, I can still have to endure the same kind of situation, but I've invited my Father, the Almighty God, my Savior, the one who couldn't love me more into the situation, get my eyes back on him. What a difference in the way you handle it. And then finally, Jesus says, be dressed and ready. No one knows the day or the hour when Jesus is coming back, but he said, be dressed and ready and keep your lamps burning. And what does that mean? How are you going to be dressed and ready unless you are in your Bibles and you are listening to his instruction and you're listening to his encouragement and you're listening to his promises? He said, you just be dressed and ready. Keep your lamps burning because his word is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. And in the final chapter, I really couldn't wait to get to this chapter because I think I might have... You know, when I talked about um, the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is our relationship with Jesus. In fact, in Luke 17, Jesus himself says, the kingdom of God lives within you. So the kingdom of God starts in that relationship that we have with Jesus, and he is in us. So the kingdom of God resides in us. And how beautiful is that? So when he gets to that section... And he talks about, you want that kingdom of God inside of you? Do you want that relationship? What does it take? It just takes a mustard seed faith. That's all it takes. But then we watched it unfold where Jesus said, and then watch that mustard seed grow into a tree. And I'll tell you, it's the truth, and you can do the research just like I did. Mustard seeds turn into bushes, not trees. So there was a reason why Jesus put a tree in there. Why the very next portion in that same paragraph was about leaven. But I have to say that I think some of you walked out of here saying, can you imagine Linnell hating birds? Because see, I made reference that every time birds are used, it has to do with a very tough situation, and I kind of made it sound like the birds are the bad thing. Remember, I used Revelation 19, and I said, 
I said, Jesus said to John, write this down, because boy, you tell those birds, they're going to have a feast like none other. But I think I made, I, I kind of stressed the bird thing. The birds are beautiful creations of the Lord, but the Lord can use anything. And there are many times they use birds. Now, this wonderful friend of mine that kind of made me think, because she said, I love birds. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, what did I do? Did I make it sound like I hated birds? So I went for a walk. And I said, Lord, did I... Did I blow this? Did I believe that the birds and the leaven were in reference to self because the kingdom of God lives within us, but he's warning us, don't let a bird perch there because, don't let self perch there because that can destroy that beautiful relationship that you have. She gave me a couple references. She says, well, it was a raven that fed Elijah. It was a bird that had a little twig in his mouth that said to Noah that he could get out of the ark. And she was so right. So that's why on my walk, I said, Lord, what, what did I do here? And the Lord, it was just, I'm telling you, it was one of those experiences. Do I hear him audibly? No, but it was so clear. He said, Linnell, it's not the bird. It's the situation that I'm trying to make the point with. Because even the raven that fed Elijah, think about the situation Elijah was in. Elijah was, was told that King Ahab was going to kill him. And so the Lord himself said, go hide. I, I will feed you with the ravens and I will give you a little brook to give you water. But the situation was, he was going to get killed, and the Lord was sending him away. What about, what about Noah? Yeah, that was a beautiful thing, wasn't it? But yet the scenario, the whole reason for the story was, geez, what God had just destroyed the whole world. He just destroyed the whole earth because of sin. So I guess I'm still going to stand on this. I'm going to stand on the fact that Jesus, that was a warning with the birds and with the leaven. Be careful that you do not let anything of this world, self especially, perch in that beautiful place in your heart that dwells the kingdom of God. Because that changes everything. It changes your countenance. It changes your attitude. And I think it really was a warning. So now we move into Luke 14. And we are ready. So it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Did you stop there for a second? And did you think, you know... Why did he even put himself in, into that position? Because how uncomfortable it must be to be carefully watched. You know, and why, why were they watching him? It, wasn't, it was not at all because they, they just wanted to absorb all of his words. They didn't want to miss anything. No, they were carefully watching because nothing's changed. 
in all the chapters that we've done so far, nothing has changed. And they're still trying to get them. They're still trying to get goods on them so that they can go to Rome and say he is worthy of death. They want Jesus out of there. So again, why would Jesus put himself in that position? Why would he go there? And I am so convinced that it was because Jesus would not miss an opportunity. He got an invitation. He was going. He was going to make sure that maybe there would be one there that would somehow see him in a different light. He never wanted to miss an opportunity. For me, that's what I took out of it because that's what I, I don't want to miss an opportunity. I mean, someone's whole salvation could be based on an opportunity that, that we're going to see later in this chapter that maybe I don't, I don't want to do, so I don't do it. So I think here, he knows nothing's changed. He's willing to be watched carefully, scrutinized, dissected, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. So I checked. I, I didn't know what dropsy was. So apparently it's got something to do with the water inside your body. And apparently, especially in your face, it really bloats your face out. And I thought, isn't that something? Because, I mean, what's the first thing you really see when you look at a person? It's their face. And it was very noticeable that this man had had something wrong with him. And so there it says, Jesus then asked, before he did anything, he just wanted to make sure we see that this man has dropsy. He's right there. So then Jesus, he looks at the Pharisees and the experts in the law. Because he knows nothing has really changed. And we've been through this so many times, he's thinking, Chapter 6, we talked about healing on the Sabbath. Um, in other chapters, it's been there too. We've gone through this a number of times. So before Jesus does anything, he looks at them and says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? All right? And you couldn't help but smile because look what happened next. They remained silent. They, they didn't have anything to say because they know they know how Jesus handles, and they know how he handled this situation before, and they knew what his answer was. He proved it, you know, and by, by, by asking this question, it was just like, it was just like Jesus saying to them, have you checked, have you checked those 700 some laws? Did you find any one of them say that you can't heal on the Sabbath? Jesus knew they couldn't. There was no such thing. So he just let them sit there thinking. And because they, didn't, they knew, they knew. So they kept silent. So taking a hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. But this is why I brought the fact that this man had a bloated face. Wouldn't it have been something to watch that face all go down to normal? I mean, the face, like I said, prominent. Dab, it's so bloated and full of water and all that kind of stuff. And then when Jesus heals him, it becomes normal. 
I mean, there was no denying what Jesus just did. Then he asked them. He wasn't done. He wasn't done. Because I do believe that even though they were watching Jesus, Jesus was also watching them. He said, if one of you has a son or an ox, you know, and some didn't have families, but they had ox, oxen, and that's very valuable. So whether it would be a, a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath, would you not immediately pull him out? I mean, what a great question. Jesus knows that no, no matter what side they take, it's a no-win. But that's just how Jesus operates I mean, if they, if they looked at it one way and, and answered them, they, they would look inhumane. And oh, they didn't want to look that, that calloused and that uncaring, even though they were. But see, you know, they're such good actors, so they certainly didn't want anybody to think that, that they were not compassionate. And then, of course, the other way was, then we're kind of lax on the laws, or I'm, we're kind of lax on what we teach, kind of make up because they depend on what we say. So Jesus knew, and because of that, look what happens again. They had nothing to say. Love it. See, when Jesus, when, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, see, here again, I, I'm convinced he was watching them. And he is very much aware of how human nature operates. I mean, a heart without Jesus, pretty much you, you are going to work at making sure people see that you are worthy, that, yeah, you are worth it, that you have arrived, and you've got a place of prominence, that, that um, they can look at you and just be awed by your accomplishments. And that's human nature. You want to be impressive to people. That's an, a natural heart without Jesus, without the power of God's spirit. That's what naturally happens. So Jesus was observing how these experts in the law and all these Pharisees, they came in, made a beeline for those prominent places because they wanted people to notice. So Jesus says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast. Now, he's going to start this parable. And, and we know what a parable is. But I, I saw it in a little different way. He purposely uses a relatable story that will perk their ears to get them to listen. And the word that perked their ears was wedding feast. Because in, in my studying, I, I noticed that, you know, they don't have a whole lot of entertainment. So when they're invited to a wedding feast, I mean, it is party time, and everybody says yes to that invitation. So when Jesus said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, I mean, those ears perked up. Oh, yeah, I know, I've been to one, they're a blast. But see, that's what Jesus will do. He will use a story that will perk their ears, but then draw them in without them even realizing it. I can remember one time I did a Christmas program at 
um, St. Sebastian in Grand Rapids for a Catholic church, and I, they wanted me to come and give my Christmas program. And so I did. I had a great time. I got a call the very next day from a lady, and she says, I was at that Christmas program yesterday, and I was wondering, I'm president of the Women's Literary Club. Would you come and, and give your Christmas program to the Women's Literary Club? And I said, I sure will. And she said, you know, I better tell you. I better tell you the truth. Someone invited me to that Christmas program yesterday, and I was a little concerned. No, I was a lot concerned, because I don't go for any of this church stuff. And I thought for sure that they invited me because, oh, they want me saved. They, they want to they wanna make sure that, that I come in and, and I hear all what I need to hear. But because I liked my friend, I just came and thought I could tune it out. She says, and then you started to sing. And you started with, I'll be home with bells on. And I know Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton sing that. And, and that grabbed my attention. I thought, whoa, I can listen to that. That's Kenny and Dolly's song. And then you went into Silver Bells. Oh, I kind of like this. And then you even sang White Christmas. Oh, yes, I love that movie. So she was telling me all this. And she said, then all of a sudden the program ended and you drew me in and I heard about Jesus and I didn't even know you did that. And I think Jesus was such a master at, you know, not ever compromising. But when you know your audience and you know that there are people there that are probably putting up a wall because they're afraid that you're going to pounce down their throat... It's perfectly okay to just start. Just, it was fun. It was, it was a good time. But before she even knew it, I was, I was into the words of Christmas. I was, I was into the whole story of Jesus. And she said, you got me convinced. Well, you come to the literary club. And I thought, you know... Jesus was so good about bringing them in with that word wedding feast. And he was going to draw them in. He, he was trying everything. We've said that a number of times in this study. He was trying everything to get them to see themselves. He said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may, may have been invited. So if so, the host then, then invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. I mean, how humiliating is that? I mean, they're all fighting for these positions and they've all been invited, but if someone, according to the host, is more important in the social status, he's going to ask you to move now, have you ever done that? I mean, have you ever? I mean, I, I got to tell you, Tom and I did that one time. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you. But, I mean, we went to a ball game, and we were sitting way up there in the nosebleed, really now. And there were, there were these seats, these great seats, right along home plate. And it's the fourth inning. Who comes to a game after the fourth inning? 
So I said to Tom, I'm the guilty one. So I said to Tom, I said, come on. I said, look at those seats. They're just empty as can be. So we went down there. We went down from upper level all the way to the ground level and sat in those seats. My, I didn't know that there were seats like this. It was great for two and a half minutes because here, here comes the usher holding these tickets with a group of people behind him and goes like this, thumbs us right out of there. And not only are you humiliated, are you humiliated because here's all these people saying, gotcha. But then you've got to walk back up to the second deck with everybody watching. I mean, Jesus is just trying to get him to see something here. Because he, he gives him, why don't you try this? This is what he says. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, why don't you try taking the lowest place? So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, what are you doing back there? Move up to a better place. That's a whole lot better. And then he goes on and says, then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. But then verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's why we sang that song tonight. Because it's so easy in our human nature to, I mean, we never want to say that we exalt ourselves. But I'll tell you, when people put us in a higher position, it feels pretty good. That is just such part of the yuck of human nature. And you, Jesus is saying, I just want to make sure you realize that when it comes to elevation, would you just let me do it? Because... If you exalt yourself here, you will be humbled. You're either going to be humbled, like through our, my experience at the ball field, or you're going to be humbled in a much more important place, and that's before the Lord himself. Because I remembered what Jesus taught us just a few weeks ago. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. But if you're not ashamed of me, then I will not be ashamed of you before my Father. In fact, to me, the greatest humiliation would be if Jesus does not present us to his Father. But the greatest elevation would be when your Savior wants to present you to his Father. So whenever the temptation comes, because we want the accolades or we want the pats on the back or we want that feeling of... People acknowledging. Just know that sometimes it's the lowliest places that Jesus is watching. And to know that he can't wait to exalt us and put us into that position. That's why he says the last will be first and the first will be last. But this was another way of him putting it. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, see, he's kind of on a roll. He said, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you will be repaid. When I read that, I first thought, well, what's so bad about that? 
That's not so bad. But that's where we like to be comfortable. You know, when we're comfortable in our own little kind, in our own little group. And this is where we love hanging out with people that are just like us. Who talk like us, believe like us. Maybe socially status the same. We're just comfortable there. And, and you know, you make plans for the next month. Uh, oh, it was at my house this time. Um, then the person says, be at mine next time. And that's just comfortable because you know you think that's fair. And Jesus is saying, you know, I want you to get stretched a little bit. I want you to get out of your comfortable sometimes. Because sometimes I might call you to invite people that absolutely cannot ever repay you. There is just no way that they could ever invite you back. But what does he say? When he says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. I mean, I don't think that he means that you got to go find someone who's crippled or lame or whatever, but he will show you. And instead of brushing that thought away when he's trying to use you, he's saying, why don't you try it? Why don't you try asking somebody that can't do back for you? Because look at he says, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed. And he doesn't say what the blessing will be. But all we have learned about his blessings is that it beats anything this world can give us. If you've ever done that, if you've ever had someone over or have done something that you know they cannot repay you, but just out of the graciousness, because you were fed grace through Jesus, you want to show that grace to someone else. If they leave or you leave and go back home, whatever, I'll tell you, there's no feeling like it. Because there's nothing like obedience. There's nothing like the feeling of being obedient and knowing you did it the way God asked you to do it. And it wasn't about you, was it? Oh, that's the best part. It wasn't about you. It was all about him. And getting yourself stretched to the point that he can use you in places where you give. Do you know you can you cannot ever lose when you give? out of his graciousness to you, and you give in that frame of mind, you can't lose. You can't ever say, oh, well, they, took, they sure took me for granted, or they sure took me for a ride, or they sure abused this. That isn't even going to come into your mind. I think he's just saying, try it. Because then he says, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Uh, can you imagine, have you ever thought about, you know, when the Lord comes or if you believe in the rapture or when you, if you believe then he, you know, in his second coming, but when, when the dead in Christ rise first and all that, when you think about the resurrection of the saints, the resurrection of his children, the resurrection of the ones he made right, and you're one of them. I don't think there's going to be any greater reward or repayment than that. When you and I come out of the grave and we're a part of the righteous group, 
not by any means of us, but all because of him. Okay, when one of the when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that kind of unusual? Like if you've got red letter edition, all of a sudden you've got that one verse there that's black letters. So there was a man sitting at that table that all of a sudden either stands up or just voices loudly, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know. I don't know this man. I don't know. And we don't really see Jesus react to this man personally, but he does have a response. This man can either be one of two things. He can be cutting the tension, because I believe after the teaching of this chapter, I believe that there's a lot of squirming going on. A lot of these experts of the law and, and the Pharisees, they, they know Jesus is hitting them square between the eyes. And so they are squirming. And so maybe this guy all of a sudden said, boy, I better say something that's going to cut this tension a little bit. Or... It could be, and I hope it's this, but according to Jesus' reply, I don't think it is, but it's up to you. It could be, it could, it could be one of the few believers. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, it could be one of the few, like Nicodemus or whatever. But Jesus comes back after this man says this. Jesus comes back and it says, Jesus replied. This is how he answered. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. You know, those were the days without clocks. And so how they operated it, people would get an invitation to a banquet or to a wedding feast. But it was only the day. This is the day it's going to be. And this is the way they operated. It's like, on that day, you better be ready right away. You don't know when that servant then makes the announcement, come, it's ready. But don't you dare come a second before that servant tells you to come. So this is what's happening. They, they can understand this, this story. They can understand this because this is the way it works. But then Jesus goes on and says, but they all alike began to make excuses. Excuses. I'm so glad that the Bible says the word excuse. Because even though we've talked about the word excuse many times, I think it bears repeating. We've got to remind ourselves there's such a difference between a good reason. And I don't have to tell you what a good reason is. You know what a good reason is. But you also know what an excuse is. And the bottom line of an excuse, it's, pretty, it's really pretty much all about you. It's pretty much... In your mind, you're saying, yuck, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go. 
but I sure don't want them to think that, I, that that's what I'm thinking. So we come up with these excuses. But I think Jesus picked three of these excuses to show us just how ridiculous our excuses sound sometimes. You know, how, I mean, how, how two of them ended their excuse by saying, please, please, please excuse me, thinking that that's all okay. Okay, listen, listen to the first excuse. I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Does that make any sense at all? I mean, wonder if it's swamp ground. Does anybody buy a piece of land without seeing it, especially back then? It's so obvious that that's not true. Oh, bought, bought some land, so I got to go see it now. Huh. The second one, pretty much the same. I've just bought five, just bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm on my way to try them out. Does that make any sense? Wonder if they're lame. I mean, it just, these excuses make no sense at all. But again, he says, please excuse us. Excuse us from coming. See, fake, fake, fake. And Jesus can see right through that. And then this one, still another said, I just got married. So I can't come. Now, maybe you say, well, I suppose maybe they're on their honeymoon or, or, you know, I just got married. I got. But when you think about it, is there anything that a young married couple who just got married by accepting an invitation just because it was given to be, to put that first instead of yourself. You put someone else first. What a beautiful way to start a marriage. But again, self-consumed. Okay, the servant came back, reported those excuses to the master. The owner of the house became angry, ordered the servants, go out quickly, go out quickly into the streets, into the alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. I know this, I know this story well, but I never caught this either. All of a sudden, you know, the ones who are back, yeah, I mean, you get it, don't you? You get that Jesus talking about the Jews, they hadn't made. God's chosen. But instead of accepting all what he offered by being his chosen, they thumb their nose and they worship Baal. And so Jesus moves on. And he didn't, he didn't go out of town. He said, now I want you to go because the first was like the center of town where the high society lived. It's where the Jews live, the center of Jerusalem. He said, okay, now, now I want you to go into the alleys in the town. I want you to stay there, but, but now go down the alleys. Go down some of the side streets. 
where some of the little less social status people are and, and bring them in. And so it said the servant did that. Sir, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out. Now it's go out of town. Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in. Did you have a problem with that? I did. Because the way I always perceive Jesus is that he offers us the invitation, but we've got to accept it. He doesn't make anybody. And so I had a problem with that. And so I went for a walk. And I said to the Lord, I said, you know, it just doesn't gel with your character. Because you always issue, the invitation is for everybody, but, but yet we are the ones that have to take the, we've got RSVP, we, we're the ones that have got to accept the invitation. So what could that mean? Well, the more I read up on this, the farther out of town you got, the lowliest of society lived. I think you're getting the picture. The worst of the worst lived out there. And no one has to tell them that they're that either. So when the servant goes there and goes to the lowliest of the low and says, you are invited to this banquet right in the center of Jerusalem. Come on. What do you think they're going to say? I mean, what, what also helped me to understand this was I went back to the story of David. Remember when David, after he became king, he said, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness to? And they said, well, yes, Jonathan had his son, and his name is Mephibosheth, but he lives way outside of town. And so why did Mephibosheth live way outside of town? Well, probably because out of sight, out of mind, he knows that David could have everybody in the house of Saul killed for fear of, a, of an overthrow. But David says, I want to show God's kindness. This is God's spirit working through David. So that wasn't, that wasn't David's thought at all. And neither was this one, because, see, Mephibosheth had two crippled feet. He was worth nothing. See, this is what these people thought of themselves. Like I said, no one had to tell them. So when the servant comes and says, I'm going to invite you to this fancy banquet in the center of Jerusalem, what do you think they're going to say? can't do that. I am not worthy. I can't go to some place like that. I think you get the I think you get the wrong invitation. You get the wrong people. I think that's why the master said you make them come. You tell them how much I want them. You tell them how much I love them. You tell them how much they mean to me. Somehow that made perfect sense to me. Because once you're told how much you're loved and how much you're wanted, how much you, you almost can see him just standing there with his arms welcoming you into the banquet. 
all of a sudden you start seeing it in a whole different light. Because look what Jesus says here. I tell you, now one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. See, he's referring back to that first group with all the ridiculous excuses. Basically, they didn't want to come. You don't want to come? Don't come. And then what does he say? You will not taste of my banquet. And I, I looked up Revelation 19, love that chapter, because it talks about the banquet of the Lamb that we're going to all be around. They're not going to be a part of that. Pretty sad, isn't it? Okay, now, in this last part of this chapter, after all this teaching, Jesus is basically saying... I want you to think this through. I want you to know that it, it costs. This isn't going to be easy. I mean, he's done some warnings before, but now he's really talking about consider the cost. I'll make it worth your while. I mean, he wants us to make sure of that, but, but he says, you've got to know the reality of this. So he says, if anyone, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own self, he cannot be my disciple. Did you look at that and say, well, hate? That doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. He says, love your enemies. He uses that word hate because it is a big word. Because he wants us to see that what he desires is this vast difference between what we feel toward him than what we feel toward anybody on this earth. Even those that once he mentioned that we just hold so tight and we adore. But he said, no, I want you to be aware of part of the cost is, is that I require you to love me with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of you. And there is a vast, that almost, I mean, not literally hate, but when you say, I love, or versus, I hate, there's a vast difference if you're talking about some person. I love this one, I hate this one. He said, I just want you to see the difference. I want you to love me most. And you know, sometimes, I, I'm, sometimes I, I, you know, when I say this, I, you know, I've told you about this uncle of mine, you know, that on his deathbed, I went there and he pushed me away. I don't know why he disliked me so much. I mean, he was supposedly a Christian and an elder in the church and everything. And for some reason, every time I sang in the church, he just wouldn't come. He just didn't like me. And I tried to put that all aside. And when he was dying, I tried to go and he just pushed me away. But when I was studying this, I also remembered one other time. I remember one time when, you know, in one of my recordings, I, I did this one that, I mean, it was a big sound. It was patriotic. It was, you know, No More Nights. I mean, I think it was one of those songs that I put all my big songs on. One of my favorites. So that meant big music, big background. And he, 
It was. It was a good project. And I don't know. I think, I, I think it was my dad that said to him, oh, I want you to listen to this. That would, that would sound perfectly like my dad. To say to his brother, you got to hear this. So, because I don't know why else he would listen. So he must have listened. And then he called me. And this is what he said to me. I mean, for one thing, I was so shocked to hear it was him. And then he said to me, boy, that's one good CD you made there. I thought, wow, this is great. I said, well, thanks a lot. He said, but I was wondering, is there any way that, that I could have just the music without your voice on it? I hope your laugh was because you can't believe he really said it. Because I'm telling you, that was like a knife in my heart. And I had to decide what I was going to do. I mean, you know, the temptation, that fleeting second when I thought, nuts to you. But I thought, you know, and it came back to me that, because I haven't thought about it in a long time, because it's been a long time. But I thought about it when I was studying this, because I think Jesus was saying, when you know, like a family member, it seems like it's the people you least expect. It's the people that you want to please the most. It's the people that you want to accept you the most. And it would be tempting to maybe compromise, step back, and just kind of think, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to play it neutral when the family gets together. I'll just, tune, I'll just turn the light of, of my heart down a little bit. I'll turn the light of the countenance of Jesus coming out of my face. I'll just turn that down a bit. Because then, then, then we won't cause any trouble. There's such a temptation to compromise with people that are the closest to you. You know, you know that it's changed now, but you know, it's powerful when my own brother was so embarrassed to me. He would never, ever admit that, it, that we were brother and sister until the Lord brought him to his knees and realized that what I had is what everybody needs. But the thing is, with my uncle, I still had to decide, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So you know what I did? I took all my soundtracks the tracks that I used because I would always sing live but these soundtracks Tom would play and then I would sing along with them so I sang honestly a lie um, I was live but it was the background music that was on tape I took all my soundtracks made one tape and I gave it to him I just thought this is this is the best way that I can just honor Jesus without punching his lights out or saying, or saying something that I know I'll regret. And I've never been sorry for that. 
But I think Jesus is just kind of saying, got to consider the cost because sometimes it's the people you least expect that are going to be the hardest on you. And don't compromise. Don't turn that light down. You let your light shine so before men, no matter who they are. Suppose one of you who wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build, and he was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able to go with 10,000 men and then to oppose the one coming against him that has 20,000? If he is not able, consider that. How He's saying, be realistic. Do you think you can live this? Do you, do you really think, because this is not an easy road, so do you want it bad enough? Because it's going to be hard. You're going to take it under the chin. So let's stop and think about it first. Because if you're not all in, because Jesus expects all in, consider the cost. I think he's given us a, a, just a wide open space here. Up to you. I'm just leveling with you. Consider the cost. Do you love me enough? Do you love me enough? In fact, I wrote this down in my Bible. Yeah, it's a huge cost to follow Jesus. It is. But I'm telling you what, it's a greater cost not to. Because you think of what's going to happen to you and I if you decide, nope, don't want to do it. Nope, it's too big a cost for me. No, I don't, I don't think so. Then you have heard Jesus say so many times in so many different ways, there are consequences and they're not pretty. So when you're doing your considering, can you afford not to? In the same way, if any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. See what he's saying? See, if you can't, if you're not sold out, because does he say, okay, every one of us tonight, we just got to go and get rid of everything we've got. I got to give Tom away. I've got to give Chad and Jason away. I've got to give my grandchildren away. I got to get our condo away. I got to look at everything that's of value to me and just give it away. No, but I do think he expects me to go through that list and say, I give them to you. And you can use them however you want to keep me close to you. When he says this, in the same way any of you who does not give up everything he has, because then you are holding on way too tight to the things of this world. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil, it's not even fit for the manure pile. So we just 
toss it out. Remember about the axe at the bottom, at the base of the tree that John the Baptist said about the Pharisees? You know, this is so much more than just having Jesus take away your sins. This is a whole new lifestyle. It is you saying, it is no longer I, it's you. It is not about me anymore. What the cost is great, but what do you want to do? How do you want to use me? It's so easy to use excuses. It's so easy to, to fall into temptation because it feels better, because people put pressure on you. And you don't want to look odd and you don't want to be different. But your Savior, my Savior, is saying, you count the cost but you also consider the cost if you don't receive what I've got for you. And if you want to play games, if you want to play religious spiritual games, we've been through this. Jesus is going to look at you because we're going to stand in front of him and he's going to say, I never knew you. Did you ever consider that Jesus is placing you and I in the middle of maybe Maybe this group that you're so concerned about what they think of you, but if they were filled with the light of Jesus, that wouldn't be a problem because you're all in this together. But you're involving yourself with this group that really does not have Jesus taking over their life and their heart. So they're putting pressure on you. Did you ever think that Jesus wants you to be salt? He wants you to make Jesus taste good. Did you ever think that maybe he wants you to be the light in that little group? Because if you are not willing, after what he's done for you, to make Jesus taste good, if you're not willing to be the light because you are so consumed with what people might say and what they might do to you, then Jesus said, then you're not real to me. What a lesson for Jesus to look at. I, I had a new lady join this morning. And I went to her afterwards and I said, I sure hope you come back. And she says, oh, I will. But she says, oh, my goodness, did you make me feel guilty? And I said, no, I didn't. Jesus loves you that much that he did. Because he knows that if he makes you feel guilty, you'll do something about it. When you just say Jesus' words, this is what he says, this is his terms, this is what, he's, this is what he expects. It's a strong calling. I can't say it any better. It's a strong calling he puts on us. But that's why we sang tonight, oh, he'll make it so worth our while. One glimpse of his dear face. Everything that we thought was so awful will be erased. So knowing that, let's bravely run this race till we see him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson, making it so clear. Father, again, may we just absorb this. May, may this study tonight be absorbed in good soil 
that it becomes a part of our life, it takes root, and that it does the job it's supposed to, and that is to change us into the likeness of your son. What a goal to have. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.